Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. March the 23rd, 2021. And as always, we have some interesting headlines. Um, the one that really caught my eye today actually happened last night on the evening of the 22nd in, in Evanston, uh, Illinois. Um, uh, this, uh, this town is leading uh, the country, the United States, with the, the first reparations program for black residents, for African Americans. Uh, quoting from the Post, um, uh, this is paying back essentially African Americans for the discrimination in cultural and educational and in property terms, the discrimination they've experienced. Uh, $25,000, for example, in home ownership. Uh, right now, according to Ron Daniels, president of the National African American Reparations Committee, the whole world is looking at Evanston, Illinois. Uh, this reminded me, this story of a really interesting first paragraph in a new book called Mine, uh, a book about ownership and property in our modern age. And I'm quoting from the book. But a lot of what you know about ownership is wrong. Once you understand how the rules actually work, you will see the drama taking place beneath the workaday concept of ownership. Governments, businesses, and ordinary people are constantly changing the rules on who gets what and why. Each of these choices create winners and losers. And this has always been so. At its core, human society exists to help us deal with competing claims to scarce resources, whether food, water, gold, or sexual partners, so that we don't kill each other too often. Very profound from this new book, as I said, Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. Uh, by Michael Heller and James Saltzman. And we're very lucky today to have one of those authors on the show. Um, Michael Heller, he's, uh, his, his day job is a professor of law at Columbia University, and he's the co-author of this really interesting new book, mine. Um, Michael, let's go back to Evanston, Illinois. What does this story tell you about mine? What do you say about these kind of disputes over ownership in the modern world? Well, every piece of land in America, every single piece, including every parcel in Evanston, trace as a history that traces back through a series of dispossessions. Um, there is no such thing as the natural or correct owner of any piece of land. So if you go back to Evanston, if you go back to Illinois, the Illinois were a tribe actually who had that land uh, before the, native, before the uh, European Americans uh, came there. So what you have is a series of dispossessions. And the challenge today always is to figure out which is the current story of ownership that is the story that we want to be telling. Um, and there's only a handful of simple stories that we use. And the question for reparations is, how do we sort of close the bracket on a series of historical injustice, not just for African-Americans, but for Native Americans as well? Uh, Michael, we had uh, the, the great British um, political theorist, David Runciman, on the show talking about Thomas Hobbes, who he sees still as the critical theorist of the foundations of the modern age. Hobbes, of course, argued that um, everything was about power, 
that there were no intrinsic rights when it came to ownership. And there's a kind of Hobbesian quality, I guess, to your introduction to mine. Um, are you in the Hobbesian camp? Are there, intrinsic, are there intrinsic moral laws about ownership? Or is everything really about seizing whatever you can and then justifying it later in, in legal and philosophical terms? Well, that's such a deep question. And here's here's how I think about it. Um, so when you think about, for example, the land ownership context in America, um, ultimately, ownership in America is founded on conquest. If you go to an early American Supreme Court case, a case that every law student learns in their first week of law school about what is the basis for ownership of land in America, the Supreme Court says the courts of the conqueror determine the scope of the conquest. So there couldn't be a more sort of straightforward view at the core of American history about the what you're calling the Hobbesian view of ownership. That isn't really my view. My view is that what we, a better way to think about ownership is as a storytelling battle. We have a handful of simple stories um, and the more persuasive story wins. Now, what the more persuasive story is will certainly be influenced by who's making the decision. So if the US Supreme Court is making the decision at a time when it was very important sort of exercise of imperial growth, uh, then they're gonna decide it based on the needs for that, for that imperial moment. Um, but uh, if you think about the actual reasoning that courts use, the reasoning that we use, uh, when you're on a playground, you see kids on a playground, they're saying, mine, I'm holding on to it, possession. That's the same story that courts are using to define who owns America. And those stories actually matter. They're not just about power. It's also about a, a sort of a storytelling narrative that gets us talking to each other about what our ultimate values should be. I have a very strong sense of what the ultimate, what, what our ultimate values should be in deciding who gets what and why. And it's not just rooted in power, it's rooted, rooted in a normative sense, in a sense of what are the underlying morals. So to the extent that we can, our property system is, can and should be uh, driven by what we view as the right and the good. I agree and I think in terms of telling these stories, perhaps one way to really educate people, make them think about the historical vagaries of, of ownership and property is to understand that each culture treats property in a very different kind of way. Earlier this week, Michael, uh, we had um, the historian uh, uh, Lawrence Bergreen on the show. He's written a book about Francis Drake and the discovery uh, or the, the, the foundations of the English empire. He, he, uh, he wrote about Francis Drake's arrival in California. He was the first uh, non-Spanish American to arrive on the West Coast. And uh, Bergreen has a really interesting take on Drake's notion of ownership. Let me show you a clip from uh, Bergreen. Yes. Was land in the 16th century, uh, Lawrence thought in symbolic terms, in genealogical terms, in aristocratic terms? People didn't think of land in a, in a capitalist sense. Um, yeah, I think you're right about that. And it's I don't really know how Drake thought of land, but I do know that he seemed to have very little interest in it. For example, uh, not long after Elizabeth uh, gave him Buckland Abbey and he remarried and he lived there with his uh, highborn second wife, uh, he left and he went back. So I think what Bergreen is reminding us is that Drake himself had no value in land. What he was looking for on these voyages were jewels. And every culture, every generation, every civilization views property and the notion of mind very differently. Is that fair? 
That's absolutely right. So the what counts for value changes. The stories that count for ownership do not. So one of the big findings in uh, in my teaching and writing is that there are just six simple stories that everyone uses to claim everything in the world. So possession is nine tenths of the law. I'm holding on to it. Or for the found for the original acquisition of America, um, first in time, first come, first served. When Columbus claimed it for the Queen, uh, for um, on behalf of Portugal, uh, that initial claim was a claim based on being first. It's the same battle between first and possession that kids use in the playground over the. But it was a convenient. It was a convenient claim because the Spanish claimed the land, uh, the Aztec land, and and they knew they weren't first. So don't. Well, that's what. Sorry, go on. No, no, but that's what's so cool about 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 these stories about stories like first and possession. And this is one of the hardest pieces for me always as a professor to get across to my law students. They think that first is an empirical fact. First is Native Americans were here first, but that's not the way ownership works. First is a story. And in that story, we are always deciding who counts as first and what activities count as first. So when America was being claimed, what the law did is define what it means to be first is to chop down trees to plant in rows, to build fences. That's what it meant to be first. And that's so, the, maybe not the Hobbesian, but certainly the Lockean notion of land and production. Is that fair? Absolutely right. So this was, and, that's, and, they, and early American settlers thought a lot about Locke. This was a very important thinker um, in, in that sort of, in that 18th century milieu. So um, it is very much the case that first is up for grabs, just like possession is. These are stories that we tell. They're stories that kids tell, the stories that grown-ups tell to figure out who gets what. And it's important to understand how those stories can be turned upside down to achieve particular goals. So treading lightly through the forest, um, which is some of the, the image that many sort of anthropologists had, not totally correct, about Native Americans, that didn't count as first. It didn't count as possession. It didn't count as labor. What counted as first possession and labor was to make New England look like old, old England. So it's fairly easy for the settlers to convince themselves that they were the first owners uh, of America. Yeah, and uh, and your argument was very much is very much supported by Simon Winchester. I don't know if you've seen his new yes, book. Yes, wonderful. Uh, I highly re highly recommend it to your to your listeners. Great Good. Well, uh, Winchester was on the show a few weeks ago. How the hunger for ownership shaped the modern world. But as you suggest, it's a hunger for a certain kind of ownership, an ownership in which we transform the land, a, a Lockean pur Puritan sense of mastering the land and producing from that land, right? It's, that's very much right. And it's a very specific notion of you reap what you sow. So you reap what you sow is, the, is a third of our six simple stories beside first and possession. So you reap what you sow traces back to the Bible and it traces back to a specific notion of productivity in regard to resources that excludes certain kinds of use and makes others visible. So when America was being settled, settled under the Homestead Acts in the 1860s, uh, you couldn't buy the land. Didn't matter if you actually physically got there first. The only way you could become an owner was by laboring on the land in a certain way for five years, planting, planting trees, uh, digging up minerals. There was a very specific notion of labor that counted, and other notions did not. So when you think back to Laura Ingalls Wilder and her Little House in the Prairie books, what they were doing was homesteading, was engaging with land in a way that favored the activities and preferences of the, the uh, white settlers moving west and disfavored the Native Americans, the Osage, who already lived there. 
Michael, we had um, the the uh, the Harvard University scholar Joe Henrik on the show. The, uh, he has another an amazing book, "The Weirdest People in the World: Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich, Democratic." He actually traces all this to reforms within the Roman Catholic Church in the 11th century, which is something we don't need to get into in this show. But in your mind, is the foundations of the West a, 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 a rewriting of the story of ownership? Very much. So you, you brought us back to the 11th century, and that's also the foundation of Anglo-American uh, ideas about ownership um, that uh, trace to the uh, Magna Carta and trace forward. Uh, to ownership today. So this is uh, there's been a very strong continuity um, over the last um, 900 years around ownership. And the original version of ownership that traces back to uh, the, the Norman conquest uh, is as well um, is a notion that's one that is a second piece that's sometimes hard for people to get, which is that property isn't my relationship to a thing. I don't own this. What ownership is about is our relationships to each other and which relationships we're going to favor and which we're going to disfavor. So when you owned land in early England, you owned, you took from the king. The king granted you land in exchange for you granting, for you providing mounted knights to you know, march off to France with. So your, your ownership was purely relational. And that relational sense, uh, it's about you and me and how and what are how we're going to manage around these resources. That's still the basic idea of ownership in the in, the, in American law today. So Drake found the new world, or one of the one of the, uh, the the navigators who founded the new world, so-called new world in the in the 16th century. The new world today, of course, is the digital world, Absolutely. the virtual world. Um, and there are lots of promises in this world, or there have been promises, I think, about getting beyond the mine, getting beyond ownership mm -hmm. of property. We had um, Talia Stroud, the, uh, the Austin-based uh, thinker on the show about creating the internet as a public park. Um, I know in your book, you, you talk quite a lot about how internet companies are deceiving us about ownership. What, do, what promise does the internet have in terms of getting beyond mine, get, vaulting over the notion of ownership? Well, there's so many pieces to this. Let me let me give you one. So when you buy a book, you buy a book called the end. This is a book called the End of Ownership. You buy a book called the End of Ownership, and you say, "Wow, that's my book. I own it. I have a physical copy." So our intuitions about ownership are rooted in the conversation we've been having. These very primitive, almost instinctual intuitions that we have about who gets what and why. So possession is nine tenths of the law. That actually goes back to the Code of Hammurabi from four thousand years ago, the oldest legal code we have is already has that notion of possession as being the core of ownership. But online, all those intuitions really don't work. And the uh, online retailers know this, and they've figured out how to take um, every one of our simple ownership stories, like possession is nine-tenths of the law, and turn it upside down. So when you click the Buy Now button, that little shopping cart on Amazon and the buy now button, those are all carefully designed, very carefully designed to trigger in you, to awaken in you this ownership instinct that we have that traces so far back that possession is nine tenths of the law idea. But the reality is uh, online companies, Apple, Amazon, can and have actually deleted uh, books and movies right off of people's devices. And it's and darker than that, isn't it? Because w w many of us have the notion of, of say, my page on, on Facebook. 
But oh, of yeah. course, my page on Facebook is anything but mine. It's Facebook. So not only are they mining our data and selling advertising against us, but it, it's it, there's no mine on Facebook or on Google um, or on Twitter or any, or any of these other so-called platforms. That's right. So as more and more of our lives move to this online world, this is very much the terra incognita that we were talking about a moment ago about Drake. We're very much in that new world where what we own online and who, which story is going to win is still absolutely up for grabs. So in terms of the buy now button, the story today is possession is actually one tenth of the law. Like there's a big gap between what you feel like you own and what you actually own. And for Facebook, that's very much the same thing. So for Facebook and um, Google, uh, what they're claiming is your online life, the most intimate details of your life. Your online searches often actually reveal illnesses that you might get before you actually even get them. Like they are, uh, there's a tremendous amount of information being collected about you all day long, every day, but what you like and what you look at, how long you look, that's called your click stream. It's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And the, um, the online tech giants, they're using two of the simple stories to claim that for themselves. They're saying it's attached to something that we own, which is to our app. And they're saying our labor is what provides the value from assembling those click streams together. And what people don't realize is that that's just a story. And you can come back with a different story. You can say, no, it comes from my body, from self-ownership, a fifth of the stories that we have, or from, it comes from me first. So click streams are very much up for grabs in the exact same way that America was 500 years ago. And of course, there are always new stories coming out of Silicon Valley. You, you treat stories as the core of ownership. And one of the things that the Silicon Valley um, are, are, are ruling our new aristocracy is very good at is inventing stories. One of the best storytellers, I think, at the moment in Silicon Valley is a fellow called Sam Altman. He's a very successful investor, venture capitalist. He has a new idea of Moore's Law for everything. I, I discussed this uh, on my show, the, that was the week show with Keith Till. Let me just quote Keith talking about uh, uh, Altman's ideas. He says, we should focus on taxing capital rather than labor. And we should use the taxes as an opportunity to directly distribute ownership and wealth to citizens. So that's, um, that, uh, uh, th that is uh, Altman's idea that AI, artificial intelligence, the new, new thing of Silicon Valley, will lower the cost of goods and services because labor is the driving cost at many levels of the supply chain. Altman seems to believe that technology then will liberate us from the mine and yours. What's your take on, 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 on idealists like Altman, these new stories coming out of Silicon Valley, Michael? Well, I would love to be on a show with him and, and talk with him together and to debate him, because this is exactly the kind of issue that we talk about in our book. I'm very skeptical uh, that we're seeing the end of ownership. I think it's just the opposite. I think what we're seeing uh, much more as we move to the streaming economy, to Uber and Lyft and Airbnb, is we're moving to the hyper-concentration of ownership, which is just exactly the opposite uh, from the end. Um, that one of the challenges of moving online is that your cell phone um, is, uh, it feels, you know, here's my cell phone. You know, it feels like I own my cell phone, uh, but what I own is basically a doorstop. I own nothing on this cell phone. All the technology that drives it, that gives it any meaning whatsoever, is owned by uh, the various apps and Apple that, uh, that actually control the insides of it. I can't hack it, I can't adjust but, uh, it. But, 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 but Michael, and I don't necessarily agree with Altman, but his argument yeah. is that AI frees us because AI 
he suggests, frees us from labor. We're having machines doing all the lifting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and all that will be left, are, he says at least, are companies and land which has a, a fixed supply. Um, so his notion is that eventually um, the companies like Amazon and, and Apple will essentially become so ubiquitous, they'll be inevitably nationalized. And then those resources will be redistributed as uh, Evanston in some ways is doing now when it comes to reparations for African-Americans. That's that's such a optimistic view. And here's the part. I mean, here's the piece that I don't I don't actually agree with. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a sentence in the quote that you put up that I think is very powerful. I'll, I'll bring I, it back so, so okay. you can read. So it. Here's the part that I, th I do agree with him, that we should focus on taxing capital rather than labor. Uh, and I actually had an op ed uh, in The Washington Post uh, a few days ago. Uh, the op-ed was titled, um, "We should." Um, it's time to rein in billionaires, start with South Dakota. Uh, and the thrust of the piece is that America has actually created two uh, legal systems, uh, two alternate legal systems for controlling wealth in this country. Uh, one for most of us, and a separate, uh, largely um, hidden uh, system in states like South Dakota that make uh, payment of taxation substantially op um, optional. Uh, yeah, I saw that, and I apologize. I should have had it up on the screen. I forgot to put it up. But, no, no, it's, uh, it's actually it's, important. It's, it's such an important part of the story of ownership today, which is that um, capital, and in particular, the not not just wealthy families, not the one percent. We're, we're, we're not talking about them. We're talking about the one percent of the one percent. People at these um, fifty, hundred million dollar level, billion dollar level, um, have basically designed a separate legal system for themselves, uh, which makes uh, uh, we sort of. Um, payment of taxes and sort of ordinary responsibilities, like if you injure somebody, all optional. And the result of that is what we've done in this country is created a new aristocratic class. Uh, actually, that's what the country was founded in opposition to. But states like South Dakota, um, because ownership in America is defined at the state level, not at the federal level, uh, really deviant states like South Dakota or um, Alaska to some extent, Nevada, are able to create this parallel legal system that makes, um, it's mostly invisible. Um, but yeah. makes a, a, a class of people who are free from responsibility. And I don't think that AI solves that. I mean, that to, to circle back to you. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting idea. We had the futurist, Mauro Guillen from University yeah. of Chicago on the show. He has a book out 2030 and lots of trends he's predicting. And one of which is he imagines no possessions. He says, riding waves, network effects, and the power of 80. 8.5 billion connections. But one of the ironies of the sharing economy is it seems to be the wealthy in Manhattan or San Francisco who can live without cars. Uh, and we might have done without possessions, but we're not doing away with labor, are we? We're not doing away with labor and we're not doing away with possessions. I don't know if you did, but in my pandemic year, I condoed my house with my family and we threw a lot of stuff out, but we didn't throw everything out. Like we still keep the stuff that sparks joy and our connection to tangible physical possessions is something that I think we're not going to lose. There's a, um, I think, overlooked and actually quite important uh, spiritual connection that we have to much of the stuff in our lives. Like I don't want to be in a world where I rent my engagement ring or lease my dog. Um, and our homes also have this quality where there's something- Unless you're getting divorced, of course. Unless you're getting divorced. But but part of what it means to be married is to have that sense that this is something that, that the physicality of it is actually extremely important. And that's something that we, when we move to a world of ones and zeros, imagine a world with no possessions. I don't imagine that world. And I don't want to live in that world. I think that part of the sort of pleasure of how we form as fully rounded personalities and individuals uh, is with our relationships to other people. 
uh, and those relationships are largely mediated um, through the stuff that binds us. Right. Not only the relationships with other people, but relationships, uh, Michael, as workers. We've had a number of shows about labor in the 21st century. We had the journalist Sarah Jaffe on the show, Work Won't Love You Back, reminding you that work isn't everything. And then we had the labor organizer, Sarah Horowitz, reminding us that we still can build labor organizations. Um, in the context of your book, Mine, of, of, of how the hidden rules of ownership controls our lives, what are the role of intermediary labor organizations like unions? They're so important. You can't overstate the importance of unions. So actually, just yesterday, um, we're, we're taping this um, at the end of March. Just yesterday, uh, there was an extraordinarily important case argued in the Supreme Court about whether union organizers, for example, can come onto uh, private farms where their workers are actually working in order to reach them with the message, um, where, do you want to unionize? And historically, that's been absolutely fine. We've had um, decades of union organizers having access uh, to, for example, farm workers to be able to bring their message uh, directly to the people who are so excluded, marginalized, and actually very hard to reach for union organizers because uh, they're so isolated. Um, so that is under threat today, um, uh, not legislatively. It's under threat by a sort of radically activist uh, Supreme Court uh, that is um, cutting back on uh, many different kinds of sort of very fundamental rights in this country, right, environmental, regarding the environment, regarding property, but especially regarding uh, unions. One of the movies up for the, the Oscar this year um, is Nomad Land. We had Jessica Bruder, who wrote the original book, Nomad Land. How does changing labor practices, this new precariat of people flitting from job to job and maybe having three or four quote unquote jobs in a day, how does that change the notion of mine and ownership in the increasingly networked 21st century? Well, what it does is it makes um, each of us um, historically, not historically, in the last, in the 20th uh, century, um, so much of, our, of the sort of uh, social benefit uh, floor that we all rely on, that we all need to get through our lives, uh, came to us through work, our health insurance uh, in particular, and, but, but other pieces are, um, of our a very basic uh, support network. And as, our, um, as we break up the ability to have a single work, as our work becomes more um, fragmented, um, the goods that come from having a single uh, job that were, that were attached to that job uh, now get dispersed and potentially they don't appear anywhere. Um, and that's a real risk of moving to uh, fragmented work. Michael, um, we've had an awful lot of shows and I'm sure you think about this a lot. It's in the book, in every class you give about property ownership and the environment. We had Erin uh, Brockovich on the show talking about Superman not coming, our collective responsibility, we the people to deal with the water crisis. Mm -hmm. We've had books about the breakup of cities, the future earth, the plastics crisis, so many books. How does the crisis of global warming uh, impact on uh, conventional notions of mine, given this seeming collective apocalypse that faces everybody, doesn't that undermine the whole notion of ownership in the 21st century? This, there isn't a single more fundamental question. And actually, I would put it the other way around. So when anybody can, when anybody can uh, drink the water, anybody can just you know, put their straw in and drill a well, when anybody can take the fish out of the ocean when it's free to all, uh, what happens is you have fish rapidly going extinct. You have uh, aquifers uh, being drained. The California Central Valley has sunk 
almost 30 feet in the last few decades. Sunk roads, bridges, the whole city, the whole valley, uh, because we have too many people sucking out water because everyone can do it uh, freely. It turns out that the best path, the most likely path to save the planet is actually to have more ownership, not less. Let me give you one concrete example. New York City boasts of having the world's best everything, but in particular, the world's best drinking water. And that turns out to be true. And the reason it's true is that the water mostly comes from about 100 miles north in the Catskills. It's untreated. New York water, it's drinking water, is basically the, large, the, the country's largest untreated drinking water system, and it's also the best tasting. The reason for that is not you know, infrastructure engineering. It's not no ownership. It's that a city employee, a guy named Al Appleton, realized that if they'd had as-if ownership, what we call as-if ownership, if we treated upstate farmers as if they owned the water filtering services that their wetlands and trees provided, if we paid them for those services, they wouldn't chop the trees and fill the wetlands. And that actually worked. The city now pays billions of dollars to upstate farmers, and New York City now has the world's best drinking water, all through ownership design, through having more ownership, not less, for upstate farmers. Upstate farmers love the payments, and they don't develop the land, which keeps the water clean. That's also the guts of all of the offset um, payments that you sometimes make if you when you're flying to offset the carbon emissions from flying is that's the most of the systems that we have for cap and trade for um, emissions uh, control for keeping the Amazon standing rather than cut down. All of those are based all of them on savvy ownership design, making more things mine, not fewer. Yeah, and there's been lots of stories we could have even led today on airlines now being fined uh, for certain flying certain kinds of planes. Finally, uh, Michael, uh, I know you're in um, New York at the moment in these weird times of COVID times. Hopefully they're ending, but they haven't ended yet. Uh, we had um, uh, the MIT uh, scientist Nicholas Christakis on the show late last year writing about uh, the profound, uh, a new book, Apollo's Arrow, the profound and enduring impact of coronavirus on the way we live. How do you think COVID has impacted on notions of property? And let me of, give, uh, the mine and the thine. Let me give you two examples. So uh, one of the, there's an ownership phenomenon I discovered about 25 years ago called ownership gridlock. What ownership gridlock means is if you have too many people owning the same thing, uh, you actually destroy the resource uh, by being having it be underused. And the example there for COVID is that we shifted in this country to having more and more patents for basic science research. Research that used to be in the public domain where mm. university professors would publish it, now they get patents and start a company. But what that means is if you want to actually put a pill in a bottle, um, you have to negotiate with dozens or sometimes hundreds of uh, basic science patent owners. And that's put a real crimp on biomedical research discoveries. CRISPR technology, which is used for the COVID vaccine, is owned by so many patent holders that it can actually be very difficult to get to pull together all of the um, ownership in order to actually provide the vaccine. So too many owners can lead to too little um, actual life-saving drugs. It's a paradox that, um, that I wrote actually a separate book about. It's also in the mind book. Um, and it's really a very costly one. That's one example. Second example on COVID um, is uh, first come, first serve doesn't define itself. Didn't define itself when America was first founded. And who's first for the COVID vaccine does not define itself uh, either today. Should it be smokers like in New Jersey? Uh, should it be teachers? Should it be prisoners? Who's first is always up for grabs. Never believe that we simply have a line and you're gonna be in your place in line. Who, where your place is in line, what it means to be first is a choice. And it's a choice based on our deepest moral values. Um, and it's a choice that we should be having transparently about who should be getting the vaccine first. 
And it's done, it's not being done in a transparent way in any state. It's part of why you have this very wide variety among states in defining who gets to get the vaccine. Profound stuff, Michael. If who's first, if it was who's first, Francis Drake or his ancestors would still own California. Fortunately, that isn't the case. <laughs> uh, your book with James Saltzman, Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives, is a wonderful read, very brief and interesting and accessible, but also erudite, a must read, I think, for our strange times. In addition, uh, Michael, since you are stuck still in New York, if one can indeed be stuck in New York, what else should people be reading in these strange times? Um, here's a book I have on my desk. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit old now, Death by a Thousand Cuts by a colleague of mine, Michael Gratz. And it tells the hidden story, actually, of how the super wealthy have created this parallel legal system that uh, uh, creates a new American aristocracy. I love it. Well, that was a really fun discussion, and we'll have to have you back on the show. We didn't even get to CRISPR or any of these other new technologies. We didn't get to 3D printing. So we'll have you back on, Michael, to discuss all that stuff. Uh, uh, so Michael, uh, Michael Heller, co-author of mine, thanks so much. Keep well, and see you again very soon. Thank you so much.